sort of Zen from Sojun Mel Weissman from the Berkeley Zen Center. And he also is received Denkei in Ordinary Mind Zen from Karen Terzano and is an heir of Grand Master Hui Liu in the Dayan Qigong lineage of Yang Mei Jun. And I probably didn't pronounce that correctly, but. Bob worked 30 years as a neuropsychologist and psychotherapist. He's semi-retired, but still offers teaching and consultation to professional institutions around the world. And we're especially excited because he has a new book recently published, This Is Not Your Mind, Then Reflections on the Surangama Sutra. And this is his latest book because he's also written Zen and the Heart of Psychotherapy, Walking the Way, 81 Zen Encounters with the Tao Te Ching, What's Wrong with Mindfulness and What Isn't, and now This Is Not Your Mind, Zen Reflections on the Surangama Sutra. And you don't have to know what you're going to talk about, <laughs> but <laughs> we're really anticipating with excitement. And please, we're glad you're here. Thanks so much, Dorley. Um, it's a tremendous pleasure to be here. Um, since writing this book, uh, Shambhala has arranged for me to give various talks at various places. Um, but they've been mixed venues of people who are, uh, many of them are not Buddhist at all, those who are Buddhist are not necessarily Zen practitioners. So this feels like coming home. Um, and uh, we can uh, speak some of the same language. And it's just, this is the first time I'm being in person with a Sangha. And it's like, wow, this is great. <laughs> How wonderful. Uh, thank you for your introduction, Dora Lee. Um, I will say the title of the book is actually not, this is not your mind, but that is not your mind, which makes a difference because while that is not your mind, this very mind is you. <laughs> and uh, that's what I'd like to talk about tonight. I'll donate this book to the Dharma Center Library, so I'll leave it here. Um, I, I fell in love with this sutra some years ago, and I didn't really mean to get into it quite as much as I got into it, but it got into me. Um, and the longer I've studied it, the more it has affected my practice. Uh, I know, or I think that Jim would probably like me to mention, the Surangama Sutra uh, is very, very important to Chinese Chan, but it's been mostly, I, I don't know if I'd say overlooked, um, but it's not studied that much in Japanese Zen. And there's some question of whether it's an apocryphal sutra. And probably most uh, scholars these days would say 
Uh, this was written in China. Uh, it draws on a lot of Indian Sanskrit sources, but it's an amalgam. Uh, it's probably not an original Sanskrit work. At least they've never discovered uh, a uh, Ur text of it. But a lot of our sutras are apocryphal or, um, well, the Platform Sutra, for example, we know was written um, basically as a political screed, <laughs> and that doesn't stop us from uh, benefiting uh, from its teachings. So the question is, is always, um, what, what is the body and mind of the sutra reflecting, how does it hold a mirror up to this person's body and mind? And it's a pretty complicated and difficult sutra. Over the years, and especially over this last year in finishing the book and giving some talks, uh, I've been able to pull back a little bit from some of the details and I'll give you the Reader's Digest <laughs> version of the sutra, which is basically um, everything is illusion. Everything you see, hear, touch, smell, think, mm-mm, throwing you off. And it's the gateway to enlightenment. Um, from a neuropsychological standpoint, uh, I'll, I'll spend a little time talking about how this is actually true. We live in a world of illusion. That's just the nature of being a human being. And how do we do that? The fact that everything is an illusion doesn't mean it's not real. Illusions have very real effects. All you have to do is read the newspaper and follow political uh, commentaries and lies have effects. Uh, mistaken ideas have effects. Prejudices and opinions have effects. So Everything's an illusion, but that doesn't mean it's not real. And that's because, well, there's a place in the sutra which basically says, uh, Zen practice is leaping clear of is and is not. What? Because <laughs> we think, well, something is. I mean, it, 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 it is. I mean, I have this body right? And that's true. And it's also true this body's an illusion. It's filtered through the uh, lenses of this mind. Uh, you might know um, the Dogen quote from Uji, from Being Time, uh, the mind arises in a moment. A moment arises in the mind. This is the understanding, says Dogen, that the self is 
time. I remember when I first read that going kind of, uh! <laughs> or to rephrase that a little, uh, each of us is the time of our life. We're times, events, shapes, manifestations. But we could also say the mind arises in a body. Yeah. A body arises in the mind. This is the understanding that the self is space. So here we are, these little swirls of space-time coalescing in this room. And, you know, it sounds sort of, oh, that's all airy, fairy, zenny, you know, but it's real. <laughs> that's the reality. And it changes the way you experience everything. So everything's an illusion. There's no is and no is not. But karma is relentless. And since karma is relentless, we need to establish a place for awakening. Um, the Lankavatara Sutra says, Nirvana is simply the field of transforming karma. So keep on transforming karma and you dwell in nirvana. When we establish a place of awakening, there's a portion of the sutra where the Buddha asks 25 sages to describe how they attained realization. And I loved that because there's this, uh, everyone has their shtick. <laughs> every school of Zen, every individual teacher says, do this, you'll waken up, you know, you'll, you'll become enlightened. If you just sit and don't move, you know, if you just sit and follow your breath, if you just sit and follow the koans, solve your koans. And the Buddha says, well, you tell me how you did it. You tell, and one person that gets bitten by a scorpion and wakes up, and another person does it through faith, and another person does it through mantras, and another person, and they, so there's 25 different ways, and that's a small subset. Um, and the last person to speak is uh, Avalokiteshvara, uh, Kwanon, who does it through hearing. We'll practice that in a few moments, actually. Um, Shin Buddhism works a lot with hearing as a vehicle for realization. Zen tends to be more um, kind of visual, you know, do you see 
and you see your way through. But we say, uh, you don't see with your eyes. So actually, there's a koan, and it's the koan which introduced me to the Surangama Sutra. It's in the uh, Book of Serenity. Um, I think I have it here, and if not, I can just quote it. Ah, here it is. So the Surangama scripture says, when I don't see, why don't you see my not seeing? Well, if you see my not seeing, that's obviously not the characteristic of not seeing. You're seeing, but we're talking about not seeing. So if you see my not seeing, that's not right. But if you don't see my not seeing, it's naturally not a thing. How could it not be you? That's the con. It's like, whoa, (laughs) what? (laughs) When I don't see, why don't you see my not seeing? If you see my not seeing, well, obviously that's not hitting the mark of not seeing. But if you don't see my not seeing, it's naturally not a thing. How could it not be you? And the problem, the big delusion is we keep thinking that we're things. I have a self. It's a thing. (laughs) You're a thing. You're a guy sitting there. Well, maybe it's not so clear. Who is it who's actually sitting and seeing and listening and not hearing and not seeing? kind of interesting way of practicing is, well, try this for a moment, if you make the mudra. And a nice way of making the mudra that I learned from my teacher is, you bring your tips of your thumbs to touch as lightly as possible. That's the key, as lightly as possible. And then you pull them in just a little bit towards you. And then your zazen is simply being the thumbs touching. Now, as you do that, is there a circle here? It's there. No, it's not there. No, it's... As you feel the thumbs touching, can you be aware of feeling the whole room and every part of the universe that your skin is not in contact with at this moment? And the mind, you can only be aware of touching by being aware of what you're not touching. Hmm. Hmm. (laughs) Kind of weird. So, when we practice, Avalokiteshvara went to, uh, he focused on hearing, 
And he said, I went to the enlightened basis of hearing. And then all sounds vanished. And I heard the cries of the world. You will experience that if you practice hearing meditation. If, and here's the key, and it comes up again and again in the Surangama Sutra. You know how in the... Um, Heart Sutra, we say, no objects of mind, no eyes, no ears, no nose, no tongue, no body, no mind, no color, no sound, no taste, no whatever, no object of mind. The mind, which can take everything as its object, but that's not the mind of Buddhas and ancestors. So, how can you be aware, but not put a separation between awareness and the object of awareness. And the basic instruction in the Surangama Sutra is whatever zazen you do, whether it's focusing on your breath or on a koan or on your thumbs or on shikantaza, go to the enlightened basis of that practice and let that meditation do the meditating. Suzuki Roshi used to say, it's a big mistake to think you're meditating. On the other hand, if you don't meditate, who will? (laughs) So we need to meet it. But no object of mind. Objects are things and inherently illusions. There is no thing which exists separate from everything else. That's basic Buddhism. Um, But how to bring it home? How to bring it home? So you go to the enlightened basis of practice, coming back to summarizing the Surangama Sutra, and then you have all kinds of interesting realizations and experiences. But the Buddha says, um, when you do that, you're in danger. You're in danger of all these demonic states and losing your way, but you'll be fine as long as you don't think you're a sage. (laughs) So go to the enlightened basis of whatever practice you're doing, let that do it, but don't think you're a sage. And then you'll discover that compassion and liberation and love are what we are. This is the mind that is us. And it's, it's, it's a relief. Well, how to bring this home? So, the story of the Surangama Sutra, and another reason that I got into it was it starts with sex. <laughs> Not too many sutras start with sex. <laughs> But Anand is going around and he's uh, doing his begging rounds. And he's been told by the Buddha, go to each house in turn, rich, poor, worthy, not worthy, doesn't matter, each house. And he comes to a brothel. He says, oh, okay, well, I'll beg at the brothel. And a demon has uh, ensorcelled one of the women of the brothel and she seduces Ananda. 
and they're embracing and entwining and, and, and on this hot and heavy and the Buddha's in his uh, grove and he goes, oops, oh, <laughs> getting close here. So he manifests the Surangama Sutra, you know, from his head and he sends Manjushri to the brothel where Manjushri rescues both the woman and Ananda and brings them back to uh, the grove where Buddha is. And Ananda is, is mortified. Oh, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. How can I? Oh, I'm so sorry. And Buddha says, look, look, let's just get to the basis of this. Um, now don't worry about apologizing, but you got into this state because you thought that woman was real. And you thought your sense desires were real. And you thought your body was real. But let, let me give you an example. And I'll read from the sutra here. So then the thus come one raised his golden-hued arm and bent his five fingers, each of them marked with lines in the shape of a wheel. And he asked Ananda, did you see something? So, you see my fist? And Ananda says, I see it. I did see it. And Buddha says, well, what did you see? I saw the thus come one raise his arm and bend his fingers into a fist that sends forth light, dazzling my mind and eyes. Actually, can you see the light coming forth? It's there, but you have to see it with your mind's eye. And the Buddha says, when you saw my fist emit light, what did you see it with? And Ananda says, well, all of us, we saw it with our eyes. And Buddha says, well, your eyes can see my fist, but what do you take to be your mind that was dazzled by it? There's a whole section that it's the mind that sees, not the eye. And Ananda says, it's my mind, which uh, you know, makes the determination that that's a fist. And, and so my mind does that. And the Buddha says, Ananda, that is not your mind. Hence the title of the book. <laughs> so Ananda's kind of startled. He goes, well, if that's not my mind, what is it? And the Buddha says to Ananda, it's merely your mental processes that assign false and illusory attributes to the world of perceived objects. These processes delude you about your true nature and bind you to the cycle of birth and death. Now, that's not how we usually think of it, but that's happening all the time. <laughs> all the time. Um, so the Buddha says, look, Ananda, what are the two fundamentals? The first is the mind that's the basis of death and rebirth, basis of suffering. Um, and that mind is dependent on perceived objects. We call it discriminatory mind in Zen. It's this mind that you and all beings make use of and that you consider to be your own nature. And in the book, I, I called this I mind. It's the mind which helps us make, get by in the world, in everyday life. We need that kind of ego mind, I mind. Okay? And there's a saying by Dogen, the mind is able to make everything its object, but these varieties of mind are not the teaching of Buddhas and ancestors. 
I've said that before. The mind which experiences the world as object, self, separation. We need that, but that's not, um, it's certainly not the complete story. Buddha says, the second fundamental is full awakening, which has no beginning or end. It's the original understanding, the real nature of consciousness. All conditioned phenomena arise from it, yet it's among those phenomena that beings lose track of it, though it's active in them all day long. So we just chanted a chant which speaks of this, the self-receiving and employing samadhi. Um, The whole phenomenal world is Buddha's seal, and the entire sky is enlightenment. So this mind, often in the Surangama Sutra, it's, it's referred to as the matrix of, of the thus come one. Um, I like the image of a matrix, of Indra's net of all these intersections and meeting points, none of which exists independently, but each of which is connected to the whole. And that's who we are. Um, there's many beautiful passages in Zen which speak of this mind. Um, I'll quote Kazan Jokin for a moment. Uh, there is a subtle consciousness that is unrelated being and non-being. Unrelated to being and non-being means free from birth and death. Free from is and is not. Now, at this point, some of, hopefully, your eye mind is going, uh, uh, mm, uh, but this is, the mind that's referred to when we have, say, A. Hay Dogen's fascicle, the triple world is only mind. Walls, tiles, pebbles are mind. It has thinking, sensing, mindfulness, realization, and it's free of thinking, sensing, mindfulness, and realization. Um, there's a place in the Surangama Sutra where it says, I mean, mindfulness is, is, is good stuff, but uh, there's a place in the sutra where it says, no practice is entirely continuous. Even mindfulness arises and must halt. And intermittent practices results are intermittent. How could awareness guide all beings to enlightenment. So here we all are trying to get enlightened and be aware and be mindful. <laughs> and the sutra goes, well, <laughs> your very effort to do that can sometimes get in the way. Um, in the self-fulfilling samadhi, uh, 
what can be met with recognition is not realization. Mind and object merge in realization and go beyond enlightenment. This is objectless awareness or the manifestation of being and not being as the suchness, the thus come one. So there's many places in the sutra where the followers of Buddha listen to him and they hear him say this and they go, I don't understand. It's another reason I love this sutra. I mean, Ananda's constantly going, I, 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 this doesn't make any sense. Uh, at one point, one of the listeners says, I might as well be a deaf man trying to hear a mosquito from a distance of more than 100 paces. Couldn't even see the mosquito, let alone hear it. <laughs> to which the Buddha says, basically, ah, uh, yeah, well, still trying to understand. <laughs> An enlightenment to which an understanding is added cannot be a true enlightenment because it was missing something. An enlightenment that lacks understanding cannot be true enlightenment because it's missing something. We're back to is and is not, having and not having, birth and death, being and non-being. The Buddha says, once the category of something understood is established in the mind, the category that which understands is mistakenly established as well. Um, in the Tao Te Ching, it says, seek learning, seek understanding, increase daily. Practice the way, decrease daily. Lose, let go, do less until you reach non-doing but nothing's left undone. So, after the Buddha says, ah, still trying to understand, look, I'm going to have to give you a, a, a concrete example. So he says to the attendant, and I'll say to uh, Sarah, um, could you please, where? Ah, there you are. <laughs> Thank you. Did you see my not seeing? <laughs> Uh, if you could please ring the bell. The Buddha says, do you hear the bell? Everyone goes. Now do you hear it? Everyone goes. Do it again. Ring the bell. Now do you hear it? Everyone goes. Now, when you stop it this time, just use your hand to just quietly stop it. So it... Now, do you hear it? No. Please, one more time. Ring the bell. <laughs> hear the bell? Yes. Stop it. Hear the bell? No. To which the Buddha says, why have you given such muddled answers? You didn't distinguish between hearing and sound. You thought you heard the bell when it was ringing and didn't when it wasn't. In that case, how could you know the sound had ceased? You had to be able to hear the sound's absence. 
your true unconditioned hearing awareness includes both sound and silence, it's more fundamental than sound and silence. So this is getting to beyond is and is not. The mind can appreciate is and is not, but each depends on the other and the mind of the great sage of India, the matrix of the thus come one, is this meeting point where form and emptiness, being and non-being, real and unreal, shimmer. And you might be saying, well, that's all very pretty and nice, and but it's kind of far-fetched. And um, actually, this teaching was so helpful to me over these last few years. I've had a lot of medical, physical problems over the last few years. I, every once in a while, I have 20 minutes or so <laughs> of, of feeling physically okay. But for the most part, I'm either in pain or um, having troubles breathing or something of that sort. And at times, it's been pretty bad. And one of the things I've learned to do is if I'm in really bad pain, and I, I'm a neuropsychologist, I taught pain management classes, I know a whole bunch of things of ways of dealing with pain, and I've sat zazen and, and all of that. And sometimes nothing works. Nothing works. And you just, I can't stand it. And when that happens, what I found is, if I just stay with the pain, or the problem breathing, or whatever it might be, and I just say, let me go to the center of this pain, or this discomfort, or this sadness, or whatever, Th thought, feeling. If I'm having an argument with, with my wife, you know, and I can go to, okay, what's the center of this argument? And I go, okay, well, it's all about this. And I go, well, that's the, the, the summary, but what's the center of the summary? Or, okay, the center of the pain, well, it's somewhere in here. Okay, okay well, and instantly, pain moves around. And if you, in one group that I'm leading right now, we're practicing with the thumb touching for a month. I, I actually did this for a year at one point, some years ago. And you find the sensation moves, it vanishes, it comes back. You're going, but, but, but it's, it's there all the time. But wh where does it go? <laughs> When you go to the center of the pain, you go, okay, center of the, well, how about the center of the center? And you keep going to the center of the center of the center of the center, and the center is a point, right? And a point has no dimensions. And at the very center, the pain disappears. The discomfort disappears. Comes back. Pretty quickly sometimes. <laughs> um, 
But you can do this with any sensation, any sound, any physical sensation of the body. And one starts to get the sense of, wow, my body that I think of as my body, it's an opinion. Whoa! <laughs> um, and it's, it's a little disturbing, actually. <laughs> but our thoughts and feelings and sensations convince us that they're real. It's not that they're unreal, but they are always more fluid than we think, feel, sense they are. And they always include the not sensing as well as the sensing. And the mind can start to move around in this vast space-time that we call the matrix of the thus come one. So, that's kind of the first half of the Srinagama. <laughs> it's pretty amazing stuff. And then the second half is kind of, okay, so now what? And there's all kinds of very practical things like um, the Buddha takes a scarf and he ties a bunch of knots in it. And he says, you still see the scarf? And you tie it and tie it and tie it and until it looks like a big tangle, you can't even tell it's a scarf. And he says, well, what do we do now? You have to undo the knots one by one. <laughs> That's what zazen is. Just undo the knots of your conditioning. How do you do un undo the knots? Well, you can see them as there's a lot of twisting and whatnot, but really... There's nothing there except it's just twisted and you untwist it and it just smooths out and then there's another knot. And then there's another knot. Um, and so then the sutra gets into things like karma and uh, there's some humor in the sutra. Uh, one who uh, practices samadhi, uh, enters samadhi while practicing meditation in stillness, but who does not refrain from lying and making false claims, is like someone who molds a piece of shit into the shape of a piece of sandalwood incense, hoping it will then smell good. <laughs> so it gets pretty practical. <laughs> Um, so there's also a section of the sutra which teaches the mantra because the Buddha says lots of different ways of coming to realization and realization just means liberation it doesn't mean understanding it means genuine freedom to be completely whatever it is, which is constantly inconceivable, ungraspable, and uh, that's what 
the mind of the great sage of India is. The body of the world. The space for our practice. The boundless field of here we are. What is this? And realizing this mind which tries to understand this inquiring mind, wonderful. When we start in ignorance, we start to realize, hey, we're ignorant. Good. Oh, maybe I'll start inquiring. Oh, good. And we inquire and we inquire and we start to realize, I don't understand. <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> How wonderful. And of course, we do understand as well. Understanding and not understanding, they're two sides of the same coin. Body and mind, two sides of the same coin. Life and death, two sides of the same coin. It's very beautiful. Which is why uh, Dogen says, and it's a basic message of the Surangama Sutra, practice with heart. This is going to be enlightened basis of your practice. Practice with heart. Practice with beyond heart. Practice even with half a heart. You attain the marrow, but are invariably transmitted dharma through your utmost sincerity and trusting heart. It takes a lot of trust. takes a lot of opening to suffering to see suffering and delusion neither real nor unreal as it says in the Bodhisattva ceremony there's an ocean of illuminated clouds there's an ocean of ornamented clouds neither real nor unreal and here we are Here we are this moment, even though it's impossible. Because the future isn't here yet, and the past is gone, and the present cannot be grasped. So what time are we practicing it? But we keep doing it. <laughs> it's uh, amazing. It's astounding. And we receive it with uh, gratitude. Uh, and love, what is love, after all, but meeting all we encounter with utmost sincerity and a trusting heart? So if you want to practice, don't worry about becoming enlightened. You're already enlightened. <laughs> You have to respect it and act in accordance with that enlightenment. And we keep failing. But each failure is itself a transformation body of the Buddha. Um, just trust. Be sincere. Be kind and compassionate. 
There's really nothing else. Ah, maybe that's enough. (laughs) Um, Maybe you have some questions or comments. Sure, Barry. Great talk. Thank you, Robert. Um, first of all, I want to comment. I'm blown away that you can read writing so small. <laughs> seeing, not seeing. Right. Um, it's like almost a superhuman ability. But anyway, um, so I'm only, I'm not finished with your book, so I apologize if you hit this in the book and I haven't gotten to it yet. But um, in the Surigama Sutra, does it talk about any Yogacara stuff like storehouse consciousness or anything like that? Is good, it on that stuff? Good question. Um, yes and no. Uh, it's definitely along the lines of the uh, consciousness-only school and Yogacara, but it uses somewhat different language. Um, it does talk about levels of being and levels of consciousness, but it, it's not an Abhidharma tract. It, it's more like a description of it. Oh, and I, I forgot to mention, uh, in terms of the mantra, um, there's a section which teaches the mantra. And there's, I really love it because it says, if you recite this mantra, your karma melts like snow. So I've added it to the Bodhisattva full moon uh, ceremony. And it's just a little short version of it so that uh, when we acknowledge our karma, we also chant a little bit of the mantra so that it can melt like snow (laughs) and we can go on to the next month of accumulating more karma. (laughs) But uh, good question about the yoga chara. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, Thank you for your talk. Hardly understood a word of it. Thank you. <laughs> Good. <laughs> so, yeah, you, you, hit, you hit the mark. Uh, the uh, would you you uh, spoke of resolving karma? Yes. Could you speak on that maybe a, a trifle mm. more, please? Yes. Um. So. Right now, I'm feeling some karma of not having explained well enough to help you understand. And I haven't gotten into the neuropsychology and how, you know, there's all these illusions that that we know the brain creates, but it's doing that all the time, basically. But karma, have you ever felt during Zazen the weight of your ancestors, the weight of your past action, and you're just sitting there and you don't do anything with it, but you don't push it away and you don't hold on to it, but somehow just being there with it, it's, it's, it's like it burns it off somehow. And... Um, Every once in a while I feel conscious of of 
the weight of, I, at one point I just became conscious, having been born Jewish, of all the Jews who've ever been killed in pogroms and the suffering that parents who lost a child or parent or a family member then passed on to their kids, who passed it on to their kids, who then killed other people <laughs> from their suffering and just created more and more suffering. And I could feel it and just go, okay, I'm really trying not to pass that on to my kids. I have, did I succeed? I don't know. Um, I, I hope so. Um, I, I gave them other things to worry about and to deal with. <laughs> but maybe that little bit of easing of thousands of years of suffering, maybe it's one little bit less. And... Um, does that address your question? Yes. So, uh, so it gets back to the, the storehouse. Yes. Okay. Thank you. Yes. Yes. And to see all that suffering as Buddha and the light of Buddha painful though that is, um, you're hearing the cries of the world, hearing, you know, just being alive is suffering. Well, being alive and dying, living and dying, that's what it is. That's okay. <laughs> yes, please. Thank you. First, first. Oh, I, I haven't. I'll have to. I'll have to block out that. Um. I I was. Well, I'd like to know where the, the reference that you talked about doing practice and not doing practice from the Tao, I think you said it was from. Um, and I, I, I kind of, I really like that. So I, um, maybe you could talk about it a little more. Uh, also, um, I, I'm sorry to hear about your year. I've also had a difficult physical year, so um, I can relate. Um, but anyway, yeah, I want to know more about the doing practice and not doing, because I feel like my health, all I can do is practice with the health issues. <laughs> That's all that comes up for me right now. So, Yes. Yes. That's, that's big practice. Um, There's, there's a, the koan, Dongshan, uh, 
was unwell. Most of you are probably know that. And I, I'm understanding it a little bit more these days. Because <laughs> for those of you who aren't familiar with it, um, so Deng Shan was unwell, and one of his students said, oh, you've been sick. And Deng Shan says, yep. The student says, is there anyone who doesn't get sick? Now, this is basic Buddhism, so the student was being a smart aleck. I mean, the answer is, of course, everyone gets sick. But Deng Shan says, yeah, there's someone who doesn't get sick. And he says, oh, really? You, that one takes care of you? And Deng Shan says, no, I have the opportunity to take care of him or her. It. The student said, I don't understand. You're sick. You're taking care of the one who's not sick. I mean, what happens then? And Deng Shan says, well, then I don't see any illness. When you take care of, the, I used to think taking care of the one who is not sick meant taking care of the one who is well. And that's not what it is. It's taking care beyond health and sickness. Um, taking care of the dragon who never sleeps. Taking care of um, you know, we talk about awakening. I think it's really good to be able to fall asleep. Uh, you probably, <laughs> you can ask my wife, but maybe I'm at my most enlightened when I'm sleeping. <laughs> at least I'm not causing any troubles, <laughs> except when I steal the blankets. <laughs> But I'm serious about that. The enlightenment, which depends on being awake, is only half enlightenment. You have to blunder and be in the dark. And it's beyond awake or asleep. It's just, just. Um, So another way of meditating is just enjoy complete enlightenment each moment and be satisfied with it. And as you go, well, no, that can't be it. Go, oh, yeah, that's it too. <laughs> that dissatisfaction, <laughs> that seeking Joshu, said, should I seek the way? He says, if you seek it, it'll keep receding from you. Oh, so I shouldn't seek the way. If you don't seek it, you'll be an ignoramus and doomed to birth and death. <laughs> That's our human situation. That's where we are. And, you know, just look around you. You can see each one of you. You're working with it. <laughs> You're offering an example to each other of beautiful uh, helping each other out. Just being here. Just showing up. Um, so deep bows to you and all of us 
here and not here, visible and un invisible, seen and unseen. Deep bow to all. Thank you. Maybe enough for tonight. Okay. Thank you so much. It's wonderful to be here. Oh, yes. Oh, good. As penetrating and perfect dharma is rarely met with even in a hundred thousand million kalpas, having it to see and listen to, to remember and accept, I vow the hasty truth of the Takagata's words. I'm not going to resist saying, I love that chant, and it doesn't mean an unsurpassable, complete, perfect enlightenment is rare. It's all around, all the time, every moment, every place. Meeting it <laughs> is the, the thing. So good to do that together with you.